When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths. The cinema now. Thank you so much, and welcome to Autobiography. I'm not Sam Mulberry. <laughs> um, his voice is the one you usually hear at the beginning of every episode, but I'm Chris Moore, and I have the privilege today of interviewing Sam Mulberry for his autobiography. So, I, I just want to point out that I'm very nervous about your cup of coffee and like how tall and narrow this table is. That's going to spill by the end of the show. It's like Chekhov's gun. Like We're pointing it, it out it, now. It's going to go off the end of the show. That's going to be on the floor. I'll make sure that happens. Um... So, uh, Sam, thanks for being here. This is also, you know, we should mention, uh, a part of me uh, live from the Bethel Library presentation as well. So, are you going to be doing some crowd work later today? We'll see, yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of podcasting this week. We did a workshop last night. And it's true. Yeah, so. It's just the season. That's right. <laughs> well, Sam, I, I have some questions I want to ask you. Um, and... A little bit about your intellectual autobiography, and I, you are, you are uh, anticipating the very first question I want to ask you because you have brought some visual aids here. So I'm going to ask you to start off with three books that if someone who didn't know you could read to understand a little bit of who you are. And this is the only prepared question because this is a question that I this was a question I love to ask people in college. Um, I grew up not really a reader. I don't think I really read that much until college. And then I spent all of college and ever since trying to catch up with people. Um, so I always love to talk to people about uh, books that they thought defined them or described them, because uh, it would also give me things to read. So I brought, uh, I brought three books, because I prepared for this. Um, and this question is all, I'm going to preface my answer by saying this question always has the, runs the risk of sounding pretentious, no matter what you say, like, Pick a, pick a work of literature and say, this speaks to me or this resonates with me. So I, I'm going to put that caveat out there, and then I'll just talk. So um, the first book that, um, that I would recommend to someone if they wanted to know about me is, uh, and I actually don't have a copy just of the book. It's uh, A Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man uh, by James Joyce. Uh, Joyce is one of my all-time favorite writers. Um, so this is probably the most pretentious book to, to, to point out, but um, it's, a really, uh, it's a pretty hard book to read. I, I'm, I'm a fan of Joyce generally. Um, I've made it through about a third of Finnegan's Wake, which means you're, you're a Joycean at that point. I think I don't think you need to finish it, um, but I loved uh, I loved Ulysses. I, okay. I didn't read it. I started reading. I don't know why I'm not talking about portrait. I started reading <laughs> Ulysses um, about three times when I was in my early twenties. Okay. Um, and then it was. And then when I was 38, I read, actually sat and read it and loved it. So, which I find interesting because Joyce. There's two main characters in Ulysses. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen is Stephen Dedalus, who's the main character of Portrait, is about 22, um, and then uh, Leopold Bloom is about 38 or 39. And I didn't get the book until I was 38 or 39. So, uh, but Portrait is. Do you think you need to be 38 or 39 to get the book? You know, I talked with I talked with Dan Taylor about that because that was my theory. But I was told that if you're an English major, you you read it at 22 and you just read it. But for me, I needed to be 39 because I'm not an English major. Uh, but I, there's something about. Um, and maybe we'll get into this about the things that I wanted to do when I was a little kid. Um, I really, uh, I, I'm not a mechanical person at all, but I really like to make things. Um, so that meant if you can't if you can't build things, then what you end up making is 
um, some kind of art. And I'm, I'm also not a very good writer, so that's another thing that is a problem. So I, I spent a lot of time as a kid doing visual arts, and I really, 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 as a kid, wanted to make movies and cartoons. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've, I've always just been interested in, in making things, and something about the character of Stephen Dedalus in A Person Arts as a Young Man um, it, I mean, it sounds weird to say like like that. It just sort of resonated in my soul when I was um, I was probably 21 when I read it, um, and I read it twice that year because I took um, as a as a senior in college I took Dan Taylor's 20th Century Literature course, and again I wasn't a lit major. I didn't have any of the prereqs, um, but I went and talked with Dan, and I said uh, I've never met him before, and I said I I want to read the books you're reading in this class. And I promise I'll try to read as much of it over the summer before class. So that was one of the books I read over the summer, and then I read again. Um, and it's just, it's been one of my one of my favorite books. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think I understand. Joyce, the reason I love Joyce is because I think I kind of understand him um, as a person. Uh, he's one of the few writers that I read a big biography on. After I finished Ulysses, I read the big Richard Elliman biography because I just wanted to know more and more about him. Does the does the book um, does the portrait of Ernest as a young man evoke more ideas or emotions in you? Uh, you know, it's 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 more visceral than intellectual. I think, although it's a, a kind of an intellectual book, but uh, I think um, I think I would have been a friend with I would have been a friend of Stevens, and I don't think Stephen had a lot of friends. Hmm. Um, and actually, so this is this is also a, I need this, I needed to mention this book for my grandmother. Um, who passed away about five or six years ago because I have the only grandmother who's like a hardcore James Joyce fan as well. She was a librarian, um, so she read everything. And I remember when the Modern Library, at the end of the at the end of the twentieth century, the Modern Library put out a list of the hundred greatest English language novels um, of the twentieth century. And I remember talking with her. Uh, and asking her how many of those books she read, and she looked over the list, and it was about eighty or eighty-five of them. Wow. So I was like, so, so, um, so. Anyhow, all that is to say, uh, I'm uh, part of my people come from Ireland, mm -hmm. and um, our family name is Byrne, B Y R N E, and uh, Cranley in Portrait and in Ulysses is a guy named John Byrne. So in family lore, we like to pretend at least that uh, that we're related <laughs> to. Uh, John Byrne, who was one of um, James Joyce's really good friends when he was a uh, when he was a young man, so um, so we like to pretend that we're like almost related to Joyce. Well, you make that claim. Yeah, yeah, so it's 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 familial in that way too. So my grandmother loved to tell me the story of like, you know, you know, John Byrne is was his friend, and, and we're Burns. So although like half the people in Ireland are named Burns, so <laughs> you have to kind of ignore that fact, and then you get to feel like you're yeah. you're close. Good. That's good. What else, what else do you have here for us? Uh, second book is actually a book I, I read more recently from one of my kind of new favorite authors, um, and that is uh, The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. Um, so Chris likes to make fun of the fact that I only read audiobooks. Um, well, that's not what you like to make fun of. It's but both that you read them that way and how you read them that yeah, way. Yeah, so I, 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 I read audiobooks at uh, triple speed, but I also Which read them... also known as chipmunking, yes. But I also read them four or five times, so in the last... Probably three years I've read this four or five times, and mm -hmm. I loved, I, I, I was introduced to um, to Wallace I, reading Infinite Jest, and I really liked that, and I'm about five times through that, too. So, but, but actually, this book I love even more, um, because this is a book about boredom and tedium. And it's the best novel about boredom and tedium. It's about it's about IRS accountants in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever read this, but but this was there. There's a um, 
I kind of don't want to ruin this speech because I, no one's going to read this. But um, there's a speech probably about halfway through where one of the um, one of the characters is accidentally walks into an advanced accounting class uh, at a, at, a, at a, I think it's Loyola of Chicago. It's a Jesuit school because there's a, a Jesuit supposedly teaching this course, um, and he gives this speech to the. Um, the students who are about to go take their CPAs and about to become accountants, and he talks about how um, what they're about to go do is the most heroic thing you can do in the twenty in the twentieth century. And he says, like that, you know, basically he says the, the the dragons have all been slayed at this point. The frontier has been conquered. That the the new the new sort of um, villain to to the the modern day hero is boredom and tedium and ennui, and and it's just just like great speech about like. That's actually the thing we need to conquer to uh, make life meaningful is to is to sort of see past those things and see through those things. So um, that's it's it's something that um, that I come back to. I that's true. Uh, it feels like it sometimes. Yeah, I think there's I think there's something to that. Um, yeah. So that that really resonated with me. I feel like if you've heard uh, Wallace's um, "This Is Water" speech, I feel like this this was the book he was writing when he gave that speech, and this is a. Uh, a more blown out version of some of the ideas he talks about there. So this is a this is a book that I will keep reading. I, all these books are books that I my kids are ten and twelve right now that I'm just excited for them to get to an age. I'm not really allowed to give them the books that I want them to read yet because they're not quite <laughs> ready for them. But um, but yeah, this is a book like I think partially like these are things I want my kids to read to be like you can make sense out of your dad by, by mm-hmm. talking about these. And the last one is probably the most, it's the smallest and most uh, important book to me. And it's actually only half of this book. Um, I'm a big Jay Salinger fan. Um, and uh, in his, so he published a, a lot of short stories in um, kind of uh, novella form. So the second half of Ray Side the Roof Beam Carpenters and Seymour, the, the short story Seymour is probably oddly the most me thing I've ever read. Um, I was one of those kids, I read Catcher in the Rye at the exact right age, probably 15, um, and I, I, uh, I think I learned the right lessons from it, Okay. Um, and I, which I don't think a lot of people do. I think as they get older, the right I, think, lesson? Um, I think the most important part of the book is when he talks, for me, and it's not the most important, um, the most important part for me is when he's talking about actually what becomes the title of the book, the idea of what he wants to be is is a catcher in the rye, somebody who's sort of making sure people are, these kids in this field that are playing, I don't know why they're playing a game right by this big cliff, but he's, what Holden says he wants to do is he wants to stand at the edge of that cliff and make sure nobody, when they're playing, accidentally falls over. Um, and I, to me, that's the part that always resonates with me. Now, one thing I'll say about all of these books is they're, uh, well, Portrait is the is the least plotless of these books. Most of these don't stories don't really have plots. And I, I realized um, a couple weeks ago, my wife um, and I read very different books, but I was like, okay, I'm going to read some things that she likes. So I read a Jane Austen book, and I read a uh, Agatha Christie book, two of her favorite authors. And when I finished them, I said, oh, I get it. I just don't like plot. Like, I don't like, <laughs> I don't really care if stuff is happening. And I, uh, the books I like, you, if, you, if somebody asks you, what was that about? It's, I want to talk about moments. So like for me, Catcher's about that moment, even though, that's not even part of the narrative of the book, almost. Um, but this book is about, um, uh, this is probably the closest thing to sort of about creating art. Um, it's, it's, it starts off with the, the author who's going to tell you a little bit about his, um, his brother who, who, who passed away, who committed suicide. Um, 
And it starts by him saying, I am not going to make apologies for being um, tangential, for being parenthetical, for going wherever the road takes me. Um, I feel like this is the, the time Salinger's like, I'm just going to write the way I want to write. And um, yeah, and, and, and there was there's a points in my life where I have uh, gone back to this book. This actually, I, uh, this book resides in my winter coat pocket because I wanted, this is a book I want to have with me. So uh, when I was in, when I graduated from Bethel, I, um, my first year out of college, I taught art at a high school in Mobile, Alabama. Um, I lived with monks. It, this sounds way, it sounds way better than it actually was. So I lived with monks and taught art at a high school in Alabama, um, which was a, a, it's a pretty lonely experience. Um, yeah. you go, you go to a place like you've never been before and I'm not like a good, I'm not good at meeting people and I knew I was going to be there for a year. So I didn't think, well, I'm not going to put roots down in Alabama. I'm, I'm coming home. So I really didn't get to know people. And I lived, literally lived with monks. And I had my own little room. And I like I read a lot while I was down there. Um, and when you're 22 and you're teaching 14-year-olds, you don't really relate very well to them. Plus, you're teaching an art course none of them want to take. Um, and it was really disheartening. Um, but there's a, a passage, and maybe we can come back to this at the at the end. This is actually a good way to close, maybe. Um, there's a passage that I that I would find myself reading when I would feel disheartened about being a teacher. Now I can say at Bethel, I've had to go back to that passage a lot less frequently. Um, I, I had to read it a lot when I was down there, convincing myself that um, that what we were doing was important. So yeah. Okay. I'll, I want to hear that at the end. Okay. All right. Um, thank you. So three books explain you um, entail um, uh, relation, connection, boredom and tedium, and uh, standing at the edge of a cliff. Uh, I think we need to we need to work through this a little bit. Um, when I when I think about Sam Albury, um, I think about somebody who wears a lot of hats. And um, at the risk of, at the risk of you pulling out your calendar here, what does a typical day at Bethel look like for Sam Alderman? Uh If it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's a teaching day, which okay. means I don't do ask counseling, which means I do just a little bit of ask counseling. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I mean, those are really my CWC days. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I teach and coordinate that. It's boring. I go to a lot of meetings um, for stuff. So I, being in ask, both Ruth Nelson and I have a lot of. Um, we get we're on committees officially, and then we just you get asked because academic support ties into stuff. Um, but yeah, so so it's a lot. Of, I, I get I I wake up really early in the morning, so I get up around four um, because that's a family disease too. I think is is early rising. Not the family I married into, but but that's my <laughs> disease. Okay. So my wife and I will frequently be about five or six hours off in our. That's not fair. Probably four or five hours off. Um, if we were on our natural schedules. So I go to sleep really early, but I wake up early. I, um, I clean the house. I make lunch for the kids. Uh, and then I wake the kids up before I leave. Uh, my son is also an early riser, so he was inflicted with that. But I wake my daughter up before I go. Um, okay. And then I get, yeah, I get in around 6, and, mm-hmm. and I get my work done before the day starts because once, once there's meetings in class, then stuff gets away from me. When, uh, what time during the day would you most like to be reading one of these books? Um, well, right away in the morning, uh, my mind is my mind is definitely sharpest. I probably need to read stuff later, um, but but it, 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 uh, I find that when I'm 
I, there's things I, I often don't do, like I don't listen to music very often, except when I do, I realize how much it affects me and changes me, and I realize, mm -hmm. like, oh, I should probably do that more, and I think the same way probably about reading in the morning more. The morning is usually about getting stuff done, so I don't, sure. uh, but that's why I listen to audiobooks, so I'll, I'll listen, um, you know, as I'm doing stuff around the house in the morning. You said music affects you, and reading affects you, too. Mm -hmm. yeah, how, how so? Can you give an example? Um, well, uh, I, 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 I was thinking a lot about, about the, the, idea, cause I, I, the idea of being affected by things. I think that's the thing I hope most, is I, I think I have a, a tendency. I mean, there's a reason that I went and lived with monks. I think I, um, there's, a, there's an alternate version of my life where I'm where I'm a monk like that's not that I, it's not like I thought about that but like I'm wired for that like I'm wired to be alone it's a miracle that I got married and have kids like I am like that's I'm wired to be you know kind of monastic and, and, and part of that then is it's easy to um, one version of a monk is to sort of be uh, not so attached to the things of this world and sometimes the downside of that, I think, my fear is that then I don't get affected by the things of this world. So like mm -hmm. I, I, I seek out wanting to be affected by things. So like I, I, um, I want to when I'm experiencing art, when I'm reading, when I'm listening to music. Like one of my goals is like I, I want to have some kind of response to it and not just be not affected. Because I, I think I think uh, I, I'm at my worst when I go through stretches where. Um, where I'm not affected and I'm not making things. Yeah. I um, the idea of, of being affected resonates with my impression of you um, and what you seek. And I want to ask you about a specific educational experience you had, which you've described to me as being very affecting. But to get there, I want to ask you this: How did you come to Bethel? Um, it, that's actually a weird accident of fate or. Okay. Mercy or, or you know providence or something, but I so I grew up Catholic. I yep. went to Catholic schools my whole life, um, and I I'm from a, a relatively small town, about sixteen thousand people in southern Minnesota. So not like Pioneer, Ohio, small, but small. And um, <laughs> and in my hometown there was uh, there was the Catholic schools and um, a lot of sort of Irish, French. Um, Immigrants uh, from in my hometown, and so there was Catholic, there was the Catholic schools, but then there were also a Lutheran school. There was a, and then there was the public high school, and the Lutheran schools went up to eighth grade. So when I was in ninth grade, all of a sudden, the students who were, were in the Lutheran school, their parents needed to make a choice: do we send our kids to the public school or do we send them to the Catholic school? And I don't know like how you make that choice, but they had to make that choice. So all of a sudden, in ninth grade, there was I learned what a Protestant was because there were all these people <laughs> who were religious but weren't Catholic, and I didn't have I never really encountered that before. Um, and I had a friend who uh, not he wasn't a friend at the time. So the person in the locker next to me was one of these kids, and um, I remember asking him once what. Like I knew he wasn't Catholic, so I asked him what he was, and he said he was a Baptist, and I thought he was lying, because well, because again, I don't have a perspective on this. Like I knew that there was something called a Lutheran, but I wasn't quite sure what that was. But I thought Baptists were like the preachers on TV, and they were in the South. So when he said he was a Baptist. I thought, well, that that's no, you're not. Like you're, you're, you're. and it turns out there were Baptists in Minnesota. Um, um, so he and I became friends because I think we were just sort of interested in in. But the fact that we had these different backgrounds, but we both were probably reaching an age where we were starting to take faith seriously. You know, mm -hmm. kind of around ninth grade, I think, is a for me was definitely a moment where um, 
yeah, I, I kind of wanted to think what I thought about it. And I will say my parents, I mean, they sent my brother and I to Catholic schools. They drove us to church, but they're not particularly religious people. So they sort of thought that was important for us. So that was kind of a moment when I was also pushed out of the nest a little bit to sort of be like, if you want to go. I mean, I remember having the sense of waking up on a Sunday and deciding, do I want to go to church or not? Mm. Which, as a ninth grader, you know, you're maybe just starting to be ready to think about that. So anyhow, we were interested in each other uh, in that way, so we started to go to each other's churches. Now, he went to Mass because it was a Catholic school, so we would do that in, in school. And I would go to his church, um, and I remember being, uh, as a kind of extreme introvert, being terrified the first time I went to a, a Protestant service where people were a little more charismatic than not charismatic at all, which yeah. my church was. Um, and so that was... Uh, so. Uh, you know, we sort of started to share each other's religious experiences, and he's somebody who knew his whole life he was going to come to Bethel. Oh, okay. Um, so I, just to be nice, applied. Like, I, <laughs> I, that's, that's why I applied to Bethel, was because of the application. Absolutely yeah, was. Sure. Um, so my dream, because uh, this was the, you know, the early 90s, my dream was to go to Notre Dame. That's where okay. I really wanted to go to school. Yeah. So I applied to Notre Dame, I applied to Bethel, I applied to St. John's, and I applied to the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. My brother went to the U of M, that was too big, I was kind of, because I, I graduated with 39 people, so like the thought of mm -hmm. going from there to the U, that was off the table. Um, I was probably wise enough to know that if I went to St. John's, it would be continuing high school, because okay. all of my friends went there, like all of the, the people that I had been through school with. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a tight-knit group. We had a kid who joined our class, moved to, to, to my hometown in second grade, and when we graduated, I still thought of him as a new kid. Like, like that's how <laughs> tight that core was. Mm -hmm. So I just realized, like, if I go somewhere other than where all these kids from high school are going, I, I get to actively kind of redefine myself. And mm -hmm. I hadn't really had an opportunity to do that growing yeah. up. So, so that I took St. John's off the table, so I came down to Notre Dame and Bethel. Mm -hmm. And I got into both schools. And I remember distinctly, this is like the not the way you should choose a school, but I, I remember it was a Saturday afternoon in probably March, uh, and I sat down with the only information I had about the two schools that I applied to, which for some reason was the course catalogs. So I read the Notre Dame course catalog. On purpose? Yes. Okay. And then I read the Bethel course catalog. Okay. And when I finished the Bethel one, I said, this is where I'm going to go to school. Like, it's, this is not promotional material. This Whoa. is, I don't know, but that's all I had. Like, that's how, how dumb you are at that age, and it's before the internet, so you don't have, like, you can't really look stuff up. Sure. So that was what I had. And I figured, they sent it to me, so I'm supposed to, this is supposed to tell me about the school. So for some reason, I, that's where I decided. I think, if I'm being honest, I think I was scared. Hmm. I think I was scared to go out of Minnesota. I was scared to go to a big school where I wasn't sure. I didn't. I mean, I. You don't know when you're in a small pond, like what if you're what you're capable of academically. So I think Bethel at least was smaller. It seemed like they were nice people. Um, so that's 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 why I came. And I will say, in terms of in terms of Catholicism, like I grew up in the perfect window because I was born in 1977, which means I was born ten years after Vatican II. Yeah. But I grew up in a church where they were. Still trying to figure out what what Vatican II meant. So had I been born ten or fifteen years earlier, I would have grown up in a far more conservative Catholicism. At least, and if I had been born ten to fifteen years later, I would have gone through what I see what I saw in my hometown, 
later was sort of the backlash to Vatican II and a conservatism again. So I grew up in, in a, a, a really nice kind of liberal version of Catholicism. Uh, mm-hmm. I was my, my Catholicism was shaped by Dominican nuns who ran my school who were really focused on social justice. Uh, so I mean, so that was I, I grew up in the perfect version for me to be able to um, probably be affected appropriately religiously, and then to to come to Bethel and not feel like coming to Bethel was about shedding something from the past, but it really was about adding. It was about saying, okay, well, I've had these experiences and they've taught me something. Now I'm going to come here and I'm going to learn from the profs I have here, the other students I have here. Um, I learned a lot from from students here that I didn't... I I remember um, being... This is my freshman year. I was cleaning one of the locker rooms. I I worked for facilities management. I was cleaning locker rooms with a guy and he asked me if I was saved. And I didn't know what that question meant. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I wasn't religious, because I that was not like a category that we talked about. Like we didn't think about. I don't. I never thought about salvation. Like that wasn't. Right. And and yeah, it just it was very. So I, I realized like, oh, I'm I'm in a different world now. So I had to have him explain it to me, and then to, and then I had to think about, well, what do I say to this guy now? Mm-hmm. Um, because I I also I I, I I was consciously not wanting to sort of just reject the faith of my past, but to say, like, right. well, what can I learn from this as well? So so I feel like like my faith is shaped by these uh, these different communities. So uh, pietism, I didn't, I couldn't have named it when I was a student here, but that deeply impacted me, and it's deeply impacted me since I've come back. The faith of the, the nuns that I grew up around, and then the faith of the Brothers of Sacred Heart that I lived with for that year, like, all of those things are really, uh, shaped me a great deal. Hmm. Um, when I think about the things you told me about your Bethel experience as a student, uh, a touchstone experience that affected you and comes back to me is, uh, is your time in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I, I, did, I did two sort of study abroad experiences when I was a student. One of them was I, I went and studied at the Oregon Extension, um, which again, I feel like I went to on accident. I had, uh, it was a Friday in uh, my sophomore year, so I changed my major in history at that point from uh, from computer science. Okay. Um, and I was in, I had a Diana Magazine class at 8 a.m. And this guy named Doug Frank came in and talked about the Oregon Extension, and I don't think I heard a word he said. I had another Diana Magazine class at 9 a.m. He was there again, talked. I don't think I heard a word he said. Then at 2:50, I had Kevin Craig's Roman Civ, and he was there again. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I thought. I want to go with this guy. <laughs> so, so it's uh, familiar. <laughs> well, yeah, and and I was excited. I mean, I was excited. And I talked with Kevin a lot about it. I was excited about the idea of like this is a group of people who actually, in the mid '70s, said if you could do college however you wanted, if you could teach however you wanted, what would it look like? And a lot of us have that conversation, but this is a group of people who then went and did it. I mean, they they you know they bought this old logging camp uh, in the mountains of Oregon and and said, we're going to read the Brothers Karamazov and we're going to read really hard stuff and we're going to... Um, by the time I was there, it was about sort of shutting off from technology, um, which is funny how sort of benign technology seemed in 1998 compared to now. Like, we didn't have phones to give up, you know? Like, most people didn't bring a computer and, and you know, and there was one dial-up internet connection for the whole place and we used it infrequently. Like, um, so that wasn't as hard to sort of push away from, from technology. But, um, but yeah, I went up there and, and I, and it was about, 
uh, I mean, it's the it's the the nerdiest study abroad because well, I went up again very monastic like to I read all day and I um, to the point where this is where I'm, I'm also a creature of habit so I sat in the same chair every day I would go to the library sit in the same chair and I would sit there and read all day and then do whatever other stuff I needed to do but but I, I encountered really great books I mean the the brothers Karamazov is e- easily could be another book that I could say okay mm-hmm. that's that's pretty foundational to how I think about a lot of big questions in life um, and I got to read it there with some really, really interesting people. I mean, John Linton, especially at the Oregon Extension, um, for some reason, uh, he recognized in me right away that we shared something. And I'm still not sure what we share, but we shared something. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the really great relationships I've had with the teachers with John. And I don't even know why. It was more of the, let's just sit next to each other and be together, you know, and, and, and I, I don't think whenever either of us talked about what we were reading, I don't think it was that we somehow were moved by that. I think, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I don't know why he was drawn to me, um, and I was definitely drawn to him, and that was really, uh, it was just a really, it was a really powerful experience to the point where I think everybody who goes to that program, I think you carry you carry the OE with you wherever you go. So, I mean, I, this is very different teaching here than, than in Oregon, but... I think there's something about um, how I think about how we relate to students that is shaped by that in some way. Like, it, like that's just that just becomes part. Of, I feel like life is often about kind of lashing together your experiences, and that's definitely a, a kind of core experience. So you think about that relating to students. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned John Lydon. Um What other? What are some other uh, teachers who've? who've uh, who you've admired, maybe even who you've modeled yourself after, um, and why? Uh, okay, uh, I can basically just go through the people who taught CWC when I was a TA here. But um, <laughs> Neil Lettingo is really important for for one thing in particular that I still think about. Neil um, is anybody in very few people here have ever seen Neil Lettingo teach, but some have. Like Neil, I'll, so I'll look at you, Kevin, when I say this. Right when Neil taught, like he brought so much energy into a classroom. We were, Sarah Shady and I were joking about how sometimes when you teach in the morning, the students don't really have a lot of energy, and Neil brought all his own energy into the room, and even in a big room like 313, um, he, like, you, you could, I realized from him, like, if you bring enough energy, you can, you can take those sleepy students and, and, and bring them into what you're doing and hopefully hopefully pull them along. So Neil was really important like, for that. Uh, Virginia Lettinga was really my mentor uh, when I was here. So uh, I'm, I basically replaced her when she left. Mm-hmm. And I spent probably four years hoping, thinking about my job as how do I make people not realize Virginia left. Like that was, mm-hmm. that's how I thought about it. It's like if we can make sure everything that she did is still happening, we're going to be okay. <laughs> and it wasn't until about four or five years when I realized, like, oh, I can also just be me doing that. It's not <laughs> not just fun. but but she was a a, a, a great organizer, um, a great administrator. Um, and what I also realized she did is she she put me and other TAs, uh, and then when I started working here, in positions um, that pushed us. So mm-hmm. I, I, I actually I think one of my first years here I was just loaded to teach CWC, and somehow I ended up doing a couple ask meetings with students. I don't know, Virginia was basically getting me ready, saying, well, why don't you meet with this student and talk about mm-hmm. it? So I ended up doing it, and then realizing, like, oh, I can do that. I, have, I could have the confidence enough to do that, so that was really important. Um, Kevin, obviously, is, a, is a, a, a really important 
teacher in terms of thinking about how do you turn history into storytelling. So going to uh, to Roman Civ especially and feeling like like the whole semester was one big story where he would bring up something you know uh, in February and then by mid-April that thing he brought up in February kind of offhandedly came back because now that was an issue for the Romans, this thing that they had, this precedent that they had set there. Um, so when I think about CWC lectures... You said you didn't like plot. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. When I, when I think about CWC lecture, that really is like, where's the story? Let's find the story. And that really comes from Kevin. Um, Kevin also had, had one of the most um, encouraging things that, that's ever been said to me, which was when I decided to change my major from a very practical thing like computer science to history, I, um, I was in CC 313, or no, CC 312. I was leading a workshop. Um, this is my sophomore year. It was about me, me and about 80 students. And I realized as I was standing up in front of them talking about the Middle Ages that, like, this is more fun than anything I've ever done. I was like, uh-huh. I, I realized, like, this is what I want to do. Like, I, I, I like writing code. I like programming. But it's, there's, I don't have the joy that I have there. And I remember going to Kevin's office the next day kind of nervous. Like, I wanted to tell him, like, I think I'm going to do this thing which may seem a little crazy. And um, he asked me to kind of describe what had happened the night before. And then he said, he kind of looked at me and he said, did you feel it? I said, did, I, did I feel what? And he said, well, did you, did you like feel that teacher thing? And I said, I think so. And he just looked at me and said, good. And like, that was the end of the conversation. It was like, that's like the great moment of, that's one of the great moments of my life. Because I realized like, okay, then I'm probably on the right track. Like that's, that's why I changed my major because you sort of affirmed like, yeah, this is this like if you felt that, then that's a feeling you should chase. You should you should realize there's probably something to that. So, um, I mean, I think about that every time I teach and feel like it went well. I think like yeah, like I felt I felt the very thing that I felt when I was a sophomore doing an exam review. Like this is it's really fun, and that's. Um, yeah, that's good. Because there are other parts of, of, of work that aren't fun, but that part's really fun. <laughs> and that's where the team and boredom comes That's out. right. That's right. Um, I almost hesitate to ask this because I can't imagine you doing anything else, but if I, if, um, which, which path do you think is more likely if you weren't doing what you're doing now, uh-huh. all the hats you're wearing at Bethel, uh, which is more likely, monasticism? No. Uh, hold on. Um, uh, computer science uh-huh. um, or something else. Um, where does the road diverge? Does it diverge today or does it diverge in 1996? 96. 96 uh, is probably computer science. Because uh, I grew up, I grew up with computers. I, again, like I feel like my life is is really accidental. Like for some reason, my parents, my mom was a teacher, my dad was a janitor. So it's not like I come from a super wealthy family, but. In like 1983, my parents for Christmas got us a, an old, and that wasn't old, it was a brand new Texas Instruments computer mm. that you plugged into your TV and you could play games on it. But my brother, who's two years older than me, showed me like, oh, you can like, if you don't put something, a cartridge in here, it just goes to this shell where you can write a program. And there was a book that came with it. So we, you know, would read how to do that. And there's something about my brain that like worked like computer programming and I realized like this is really fun and and I found I would we didn't have a computer for a long time so I used to go to friends houses um, just so I could use their computer I would write code on in a notebook like five ten pages of code go to a friend's house 
in type for an hour the code that I had. So I'd be running the programs in my head like, okay, I know this works, but now I want to actually put it into a computer to run it. So I loved, I loved it. Mm. Um, but, but I didn't think I would love the job because I, I realized the job probably isn't as creative as I think it is. <laughs> I mean, at least that's what I thought. Because I realized, like, oh, when I'm in class, like, we're learning about how do you program databases to, like, do administrative things for people. And I thought, well, that's fine. But, like, when do we get to make something? And so, but I probably would have loved it. I think I really, and, and there's a part of me that, um, it's not that I regret the path I took, but I regret that I, I actually broke with that a great deal. Like I, the thought of doing it now sounds really fun, but also like a big mountain to climb. Like I'd have to really learn a whole bunch. And yeah, I see elements of how you've taken some of those ideas and brought them back into what you do now. Like you created a virtual museum for sure. CWC for students to explore in an online. That's just format. a really complicated PowerPoint, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's different. <laughs> True. It's really complicated. It is. <laughs> yeah. But. That kind of idea of visualizing something abstract and mm -hmm. then creating it in a way that other people can experience. Oh, sure, sure. Um, yes, PowerPoint, but yeah, I mean, there, there, yeah, there, there's a logic to it that I that I enjoy. Um, I well, I don't know how. It, um, we have a few more minutes, I think, but I want to ask a couple more questions. You're going to be on sabbatical this uh, spring. Yeah. Can Can we get a, a trailer, a teaser, a promo for your sabbatical project? Yeah, I actually started this weekend, um, which is which is I contacted. So I'm I'm doing a. Uh, and this, 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 is, this is it's exciting because I'm doing something that I, I think I can do, but I don't know that I can do. And that mm -hmm. actually really excites me. Um, I'm also going to look at Barrett and say, so prepare. There's like a 25% chance of an utter failure, which, okay, he's okay with that. We're all on the record there. Um, uh, it's, so it's a big filmmaking project. What I really want to do is make a documentary. That's what okay. I really want to do. But I also know that I might not be able to do that. So I need, if that part doesn't work, I need the rest to still be valuable. Yeah. So um, so I, I'm going to, I contacted everyone who is still here at Bethel who has ever won the Faculty Excellence Award for teaching. So there's about 20 people. And I want to do uh, film long-form interviews with them about teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I emailed them to say, can I have an hour or 90 minutes of your time? So like, I want a big chunk of time. And I want to I wanted just collect as much information from them. Um, and then I want to build a digital archive where, uh, so kind of for faculty development purposes, where, where people can access those. And um, if Ken Gerber was, was here, I would look at him and say, and I want to like meta tag it all so it's easy to find people talking about things, because it's not just dropping 90 minutes of video, but like actually having stuff people can search for. Uh, but then what I really want to do is take that and say, can I take those 20, 30 hours of footage and put together a 90-minute statement about teaching um, from the wisdom of these folks. So one, one of my favorite filmmakers is Errol Morris, and my favorite film of his is a movie that nobody talks about called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. It's great. So, like, that's my template. I think I said in the workshop yesterday, I just, like, basically steal other people's templates and do my own stuff. Like, I want to, I've watched that movie a number of times recently. I'm going to probably watch it regularly on sabbatical because I want to pay attention to how he does a lot of things there. But that's, it's a, that's a film where he, it's sort of about genius and creation and, um, an oddity. Um, and it's, it's, so he looks at these four people who are, kind of brilliant in their own field. So one's a robotics expert, one is a topiary gardener, one's a lion tamer, and one is an expert on naked mole rats. And he intercuts them and is like, he's brilliant. So like, mine's not gonna be that. But, it, but, like, but, I, but I like the idea of saying, let's talk to people who are really brilliant at what they do and see if we can find, I, I love the idea of finding something in this 
kind of wealth of information. So that's that's the project. So, and so, and so then hopefully May 23rd at 7 p.m. you can watch it. So <laughs> that's my hope. So there's a, so there's a screening. That's my hope. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, how do you feel about the thin blue line? Um, a lot of plot in that, Chris. Oh. See, it's, it's, <laughs> I almost had him. See, I picked the most plotless Errol Morris doc. <laughs> um, I have two questions. That yes, we're right. Right. Um, if you, uh, this is, hold on, you know I've, we have lots of hypothetical conversations mm -hmm. at lunch. This is not a million dollars buck type question, but um, I want to give you one day out of time. It's a day disconnected from the days that come before it, the days that come after it. Sure. It's a singular day, a singular 24-hour period for which you can do anything you want. Spend your time any way you wish. Uh, what do you want to do with that day? I, I, I don't know. Because um, honestly, like, the first thing that comes to, comes to mind is a really terrible use of that day, so um, I don't want to say that. No one, will, no one will know how you spend this day. It, no, but the terrible use is like I'd love to get caught up in stuff I need to get done, which is like a really terrible use of the day. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, I think, um, I, well, in truth, what I would really love is nothing. Like I, I, I um, and this is part of my, you know, having a family, having kids, and and marrying into a big family, and my family lives close. So even when, even in the summer, there's like things happening all the time, and, and I, I really love the moments where there's nothing, where like, uh, and, and this this happens occasionally because I, if I'm working on a big project in the summer, sometimes my wife and kids will go up to the my, her parents' cabin for a week, and I'll work. Um, but I will sometimes take half days where I actively don't do something, and I'll, I'll sometimes go for a walk and just sort of wander. And it's like I actually because I don't do that enough, um, so that's kind of what I would like to do. And again, that's not a that's not an exciting answer, but but that would it would be really nice. That would be nice. I love it because no, if nobody else is doing anything, then I can't get behind. That's right. So, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What's something I should ask you? I don't know. I don't think that I had like a hoping you would ask a question. So that was the most question. So um, something you should have asked me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have. I don't okay. have a good answer for that. That's all right. Sorry. So you should ask me to read this to close it though. I would like you to. Do all right. That. So again, you have to picture being uh, being twenty two years old in. Uh, part of the country you've never been to, teaching um, kids who you don't understand, who don't understand you, who don't want to be in your classroom. <laughs> but knowing that you need to get up each day and go back into that classroom. Um, so this is this is this is how I uh, this is how I made it through. Um, and and hopefully this gets at least one person to want to read the rest of the story. So um, so the the author. The narrator is telling a story about his brother um, named Seymour here. So this is the very end of the end of the story. He says, I'm finished with this, or rather, it's finished with me. Fundamentally, my mind is always balked at any kind of ending. How many stories have I torn up since I was a boy simply because they had with that old Chekhov baiting noise Somerset mom calls a beginning, a middle, and an end? 35, 50? One of the thousand reasons I quit going to the theater when I was about 20 was that I resented like hell filing out of the theater just because some playwright was forever slamming down his silly curtain. Whatever happened to that stalwart Boar Fortinbras, who eventually fixed his wagon? Nonetheless, I'm done here. 
There are one or two more fragmentary physical type remarks I'd like to make, but I feel too strongly that my time is up. Also, it's 20 to 7 and I have a 9 o'clock class. There's just enough time for a half hour nap, a shave, and maybe a cool refresh refreshing bloodbath. I have an impulse, more of an old urban reflex than an impulse, thank God, to say something mildly caustic about the 24 young ladies just back from big weekends at Cambridge or Hanover or New Haven who will be waiting for me in room 307. But I can't finish writing a description of Seymour, even a bad description, even one where my ego, my perpetual lust to share top billing with him is all over the place, without being conscious of the good, the real. This is too grand to be said, so I'm just the man to say it. But I can't be my brother's brother for nothing, and I know, not always, but I know, that there's no single thing I do that's more important than, that, than going into that awful room 307. There isn't one girl in there, including the terrible Miss Sable, who is not as much my sister as Boo Boo or Franny. They may shine with the misinformation of the ages, but they shine. This thought manages to stun me. There's no place I'd really rather go right now than room 307. Seymour once said that all we do our whole lives is go from one little piece of holy ground to the next. Is he never wrong? Just go to bed now, quickly, quickly, and slowly. Mm. Sam Mulberry, thank you for your autobiography. Anytime. <laughs>